Let's read our text for today. Mark chapter 14, verses 17 to 25. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this is your word. Uh, this is how you communicate to us. And Lord, because you're a personal God, you can take uh, these words that are for uh, the whole world for all time and make them incredibly personal to us. And Lord, I pray that you would do that through your spirit these next few minutes. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Here in this worship service, uh, we're going the length of the Passion Week. We started with Palm Sunday, when Jesus rolls into Jerusalem on a donkey, and we're ending the service with Good Friday. My task during this service is to unpack what happens on Thursday of that week. The Jews are in the midst of one of their five sacred feasts, the Feast of Passover. Passover celebrated the salvation that God brought them when they were slaves in Egypt. God had sent plagues to terrorize Pharaoh so that he might cave and let the Jews go free to the promised land. And the last of all these plagues was the death of the Egyptian firstborn. And to protect the Israelite firstborn, God orders each family to slaughter a lamb and wipe his blood around the doorpost of their homes. And when the Spirit of God would come to take the Egyptian firstborn, he would see the blood on the doorposts of the Jews, and he would pass over those families, sparing the firstborn. And so now, each year, they're to celebrate God's protection of them by having a feast. Now you have Jesus and his disciples, and they're Jewish, and they're celebrating this feast. And Jesus is showing that this ancient practice, this Passover feast, pointed to what he's about ready to do with them when he institutes in the upper room the Lord's Supper when he's got the wine and the bread. And all the preparations have been made for them to have this meal. This room has been secured. A proper table has been set up. The food prep has all been done. This is a really, really big moment. And Jesus is there. He's there with his 12 closest friends. He spent three years with these guys. Day in, day out. They've got over a thousand days together. They've traveled a lot together. They have worked together. Now think about your best friends. Sure, you may have been friends with them longer than Jesus has been friends with these guys, but you likely have not spent the number of hours with them that Jesus has spent with the disciples. And now, here they are. And Jesus is on the verge of his most difficult task. He's staring down the barrel of death. And because of his death, there's going to be 
no need for a Passover lamb to be prepared. Because of his death, there's going to be no need for the blood of that Passover lamb to be painted on the doorposts of their house. There's going to be no need even to have a Passover feast because now Jesus is going to be that lamb. Jesus' blood is what's going to save the people from judgment. And it's going to cost them everything. And you would think that during tough moments like this for Jesus that the deepest allegiances of his closest friends, the disciples, would be drawn out. But it actually does the opposite. Instead of allegiance, Jesus gets betrayal. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. It's going to be one of the twelve. It's going to be one of his closest friends. It's going to be someone he shared hundreds, maybe even thousands of meals with. It's going to be someone that He's been tagged in photos with time after time after time. And this betrayer, this betrayer has had a front row seat for all of Jesus' miracles. This betrayer is going to be someone who's heard all of Jesus' teaching firsthand. This is someone Jesus never let down. This is someone that Jesus has always been there for. So how could one of his disciples betray him? Sure, we can understand that a Jewish religious leader would want Jesus' head on a plate. We can understand the Romans wanting Jesus dead, but one of his closest friends? Really? Yes. And that's why it's betrayal. See, getting slighted and being betrayed are very different. Being slighted is when you're on the receiving end of someone doing something relatively minor to you, like cut you off in traffic like taking the last thing of toilet paper in the store right ahead of you, like someone who's five minutes late to a meeting and you're in a hurry. That's being slighted. But betrayal goes further than being slighted. Betrayal is the concentrated form of being slighted. Betrayal is exponential slight. Betrayal is a familiar theme interwoven in so many Disney movies. And having kids that are the ages of 10, 8, and 3, and having uh, the recent release of Disney+, Plus, it might as well make me a PhD in all things Mickey. So let me give you some examples of betrayal in Disney movies. There's going to be some spoiler alerts here. The first one's a relatively recent one. It's in Ralph Breaks the Internet. I hope you've seen this masterpiece. In it, Ralph uh, sabotages his very best friend, Vanellope. He sabotages her because Vanellope is in this game where she's a race car driver. And Ralph's not in there, and he's so jealous of the new friends that she is making in this race car game. And as a result, he about loses her altogether because he tries to break the game. They were best friends. Then you've got Toy Story 3. Andy is now all grown up. He no longer needs his toys, and the toys get donated to the daycare center, Sunnyside Daycare. And now all Andy's toys seem like they're getting along just fine at Sunnyside Daycare. These new toys that are going to integrate into the life at Sunnyside Daycare, but 
there's this bear, stuffed bear named Lotso. And Lotso engenders a lot of confidence at the beginning, but he betrays that confidence. And he's actually a dictator. Then there is, in my opinion, the betrayal of all betrayals and all of cinematic history in The Lion King. Mufasa is the king, the rightful king, and he rules the pride land with equity, with justice. And he has this brother. His brother's name is Scar. His name should be a giveaway, right? And Scar wants to be the king. So what Scar does is that he has Mufasa killed so that he can take the throne. It's ruthless betrayal. But there's more in Disney movies. You have Jafar betraying the Sultan in Aladdin. Hans betrays Anna in Frozen. And Disney, on all of Hollywood for that matter, they know something about the human condition. They know that betrayal moves us like few other plot lines. See, many of us, we, we've experienced betrayal in heavy doses in our lives, haven't we? Perhaps while you were growing up, you had a parent fall into infidelity. It ripped your family apart. The secure environment that God intended you to experience as a child was fragmented because one of your parents betrayed their spouse. Perhaps when you were a child, you were a victim of abuse. And what the statistics bear out is that your abuser was very likely someone you knew and someone you trusted. It wasn't someone random. And what makes abuse so terrible is not just the grotesque acts themselves, but it's the trust that's been betrayed. Or maybe uh, while you were growing up as a teenager, maybe even into your adult life, someone has cheated on you. Cheated on you in a dating relationship or even worse in marriage. If any of these scenarios have happened to you, it's like someone's dropped an atomic bomb into your soul. And the results of this atomic bomb are much more than just disorientation. The results are more like catastrophe. Does this describe you? Well, here are some telltale signs that you've been betrayed. One thing is that trust becomes very hard post-betrayal in relationships. I mean, really hard. I, I, I mean, impossible hard. It's almost like you live your whole life with PPE from head to toe in an attempt to wall off any possibility of being betrayed again. Another telltale sign is self-pity. Self-pity is a, another technique that we adopt when we've been betrayed. We feel sorry for ourselves and we want to tell our story of betrayal to anyone and everyone so that they might join the party and if they join our pity party, then it likely means they won't betray us. Or at least that's what we think. Another telltale sign is revenge. If you've been betrayed, then revenge might be in the works. Revenge likely will not become violent in a physical sense, but an all-out smear campaign could be in order against your betrayer. But we, we know none of these strategies really work. They don't heal the wound that betrayal has left with us. But you want to know what works? It's forgiveness. 
Forgiveness seems like insanity, and it kind of is. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. What does make sense in betrayal is punishment. It's justice. Let me be clear. If you've been betrayed by someone, and that person has intentionally, methodically, and strategically harmed you, I'm not advocating for a little brushing under the rug forgiveness treatment plan. That's the way this person has betrayed you. It very well might mean this person gets reported. It might mean this person feels the consequences of their actions. It might very well mean that there's no relationship to be had with them. But it's probably more likely. The person who's betrayed you didn't tactfully premeditate a course of action against you. It was more likely that it was a slip-up. It was more likely that it's occasional in nature. And perhaps the person who's betrayed you is totally unaware of how their betrayal would impact your life. Well, if that's the case, then forgiveness will look like moving toward the one who has hurt us. And that move toward them is risky. Because we're inviting our betrayers to us so that they might repent and we might be restored. It could be really messy. It could take some time because you need continued protection as the betrayer goes through a process of change and goes through a process of taking action themselves. But forgiveness often just doesn't seem logical. It, it seems wrong. A betrayer doesn't deserve forgiveness. The whole thing is just so strange. But friends, the gospel is terribly strange. See, we live our whole lives under the law. And I don't mean federal or state law. I'm talking about a system of living in the world that is deeply embedded in our hearts. The law becomes a standard in our hearts, a, a bar, a, a, a law to live up to. And we assume if we hit the standard, if we hit the bar, then we should be rewarded. Like, if, if I live effectively in shelter in place for several weeks then I deserve not to get the coronavirus. That's how it works. And conversely, if you don't hit the standard, then you should be punished. Like, if I don't shelter in place well, if I had this impulse to go be with someone or run an unneeded errand that I later regret, then I deserve to get coronad. See, one leaves you angry because you haven't received what you deserved, while the other leaves you in terror because you should be punished. And this way of thinking is all throughout our lives. It's what comes very natural. But what doesn't come natural is the gospel. And at first, the gospel comes to the betrayed, and it further offends us. See, we think we're hurting because of the sin of others. But then the gospel comes to us, and we hurt even more because it requires us to forgive. But it gets worse. The gospel comes to us, and tells us not just that we need to forgive, but it comes to us and says, yes, you are a victim of betrayal, but you're also a villain. Because we're actually betrayers ourselves. See, it's really easy to read our text today and put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. We're the ones who are betrayed. 
but we should be the one to Judas to choose. We all have some Judas in us, if we're really honest. Every human being, not just Christians, we know we've missed the mark. We try really hard to silence the voices of guilt and shame with all kinds of self-talk. We try to ease our conscience by listing off our good works. We try to ease our conscience by rattling off excuses for our failures. But here's the thing about self-talk. We're just not convinced. We don't believe ourselves. See, think about our text here. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. But Jesus still served him the meal. Are you kidding me? That's divine insanity. Jesus should have barred the doors to the betrayer's entrance. Jesus should have called Judas out in front of everyone and told him to leave. But Jesus allows him to remain there. He lets him take the bread, his body. He lets them drink the wine, his blood. But look at the rest of the disciples. The rest of the disciples are actually doing some pretty good self-reflection. Jesus predicts that one of them is going to be the betrayer, and they say, is it I? They're not looking around the room trying to predict who Jesus' betrayer is going to be. They're actually considering that they might be the betrayer. And in some ways, they all do betray him. They desert him in the garden. They're nowhere to be found during his trial and imprisonment. But after the resurrection, Jesus comes to his disciples. He comes to his betrayers. He shows them his nail-pierced hands. He cooks them a meal and eats with them on the beach. This must have been shocking. The disciples knew they had betrayed Jesus, yet Jesus comes to them. Isn't that strange? Isn't that perplexing? It is. And it's the gospel. Jesus has come and lived the life that we betrayers refuse to live. He died the death that we deserve. He rose again to come and chase us down and offer his life to us. Deep down, we know we're unworthy of his love. We know we're unworthy of his love because we betrayed the one who least deserves to be betrayed. Jesus is the most trustworthy person in the universe. He's never gone back on his promise. He's never let us down. Yet here he is again on this Lord's day, begging us to believe that he loves us. Amen.